This is Reclaiming Jane, an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. I'm Lauren Weathers. And I'm Emily Davis-Hale. And today, we're reading chapters 21 through 25 of Pride and Prejudice with a focus on colonialism. I put that in in editing <laughs> we don't have to sing it ourselves there's a reason for that I don't think our listeners want us to sing it ourselves no of, of my many talents singing isn't unfortunately not one of them it's not one of mine either <laughs> I was not blessed with the ability to carry a tune that's yep. okay it doesn't stop me from singing but my, I'm not good at it no my shower has been witness to many concerts <laughs> um my world tour begins next week <laughs> We will be the visiting world shower tour. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my my car has seen abominations untold. Oh yes, hopefully they will remain untold. <laughs> but yes, colonialism. What a topic for today that we've chosen. Truly, that appears exactly nowhere <laughs> in this section, explicitly anyway. It, right, explicitly. It's always there, lurking in the background, mm-hmm. but. Last time we were able to make war into somewhat of a lighthearted episode, despite the fact that we were literally discussing war, I'm wondering if we'll be able to do the same with colonialism. It might go down a dark path. It might be like lighthearted critique. I don't know. I feel like lighthearted critique is is where it's going to go. Obviously, there's going to be critique. (laughs) All right. Well, shall we shall we start thinking about Britain in the Regency era and recapping these these five chapters? Let's do that. You are up first for this episode, Madame. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. That was <laughs> brimming with confidence. I love it. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Okay. Um, the Bingleys have left the building. They've gone back to town. Um, Jane gets a letter from Miss Bingley explaining everything and is convinced that none of them care about her anymore. Uh, Elizabeth, well, not that they don't care about her anymore. Elizabeth thinks that Jane's like, oh, they'll come back and maybe it'll be fine. I'm not explaining this very well. This recap is crap. Um, Charlotte is the one who gets a proposal from Mr. Collins. Mrs. Bennett loses her mind. Elizabeth doesn't have much faith in Charlotte either. And also the gardeners who are Elizabeth's aunt and uncle have returned. Okay. Okay. Emily, mm-hmm. are you prepared to do a better recap than I just did? Absolutely. Wonderful. Great. <laughs> <laughs> you set a very low bar. Thank you. I really did. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one, go. Mr. Collins has left off his proposal to Elizabeth, much to her relief. The Bingleys, however, along with Mr. Darcy, have fled the countryside. So everyone is in an uproar. Even more so when Mr. Collins goes and proposes to Charlotte Lucas, who has encouraged him to do so. So everyone just has gossip galore, which they are happy to share with Aunt and Uncle Gardner when they come to Longbourn for Christmas. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Shall we talk about 
I mean, Mr. Collins and Charlotte, first of all, I feel like that has to be the first topic of conversation. Yeah. At the end of the last section, they had finally convinced Mr. Collins that Elizabeth's rejection was actually a sincere rejection. She did not want to marry him. And he finds solace in the attentions of Miss Charlotte Lucas. Who is quite calculating. She realizes that she only has a few days because he's supposed to be leaving on Saturday. Yeah, uh, Charlotte is ruthlessly pragmatic. You know, we like to think of Lizzie as being the one with the most sense, the best head on her shoulders. But really, Charlotte is possibly the single character with the most clear-sighted view on what her life actually is as a woman of her standing of her class Mm -hmm. and with her prospects and when she sees an opportunity in Mr. Collins she basically in the space of what is it three days encourages him to the point that she gets that proposal Mm -hmm. and immediately says yes and has no pretensions whatsoever about what her life with Mr. Collins is going to be. She's fully aware that he's an unpleasant man, that it's not going to be a love match by any means, Mm -hmm. but she's secure. And that's what matters to her. And honestly, I have to admire her for it. Yeah. She is under no illusions of what her life would be like without him either, because Mm -hmm. she knows she's already 27, which is, you know edging out of that eligibility frame for marriage for women in that time period she's not very pretty and she doesn't have a ton of fortune to bring with her to a marriage because she has so many siblings and she's a woman so the fortune's not going to you know fall into her lap so she's running out of time and she's running out of options she has an option that will give her a decent life and she figures you know okay well if i can figure out how to live with this man and also encourage his affections and i have a way out and she finds it. Yeah, I think, honestly, Charlotte is the least naive of anyone. Even Lizzie is almost hopelessly romantic. Mm-hmm. She wants to have some measure of affection with someone before she agrees to marry them. But Charlotte, none of that. Just absolutely ruthless. Yeah, the passage I felt like was really exemplary of all of that was right after Mr. Collins has proposed and they've gone and told her family It says, Charlotte herself was tolerably composed. She had gained her point and had time to consider of it. Her reflections were in general satisfactory. Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome, and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Like, yeah, this guy sucks, and he doesn't love me, and I don't love him either, but this will work, so I'm going to make it work. Yeah, and that same passage continues onward right there with exactly what we said before. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honorable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune, and however uncertain of giving happiness, must be their pleasantest preservative from want. Charlotte knows this. Mm -hmm. She has no illusions, and she's done, frankly, what is best for her. So, yeah, I'm definitely going on was a little annoyed at Lizzie for refusing to see past her own dislike of Mr. Collins to the very real concerns that Charlotte has for her own future. Right. And partially, I think, because Lizzie's seven years younger, so she's 20 and Charlotte is 27, she still has like the the time and the space to be dismissive of that. And she maybe would have a more favorable view of her friend had they been the same age. And Elizabeth was also facing, oh, I'm going to age out of being eligible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But... 
She's not. She's 20 rather than 27. So to her, it's still abstract. She has some maturing to do still. Definitely. So continuing on that topic, but also bringing in the first place that I saw some thematic connection to colonialism was when Mrs. Bennett is once again lamenting the entail of Longbourn away from her own daughters. This is at the very end of chapter 23, where uh, she's complaining that basically, oh, Charlotte Lucas of all people is going to replace me as mistress Mm -hmm. of this house, uh, saying I cannot bear to think that they should have all this estate. How could anyone have the conscience to entail away an estate from one's own daughters? And the irony of it struck me, specifically because of our theme of colonialism here, her distress at, oh, I can't believe that we would just give this away to somebody else. Like, oh no, can you imagine how (laughs) terrible it must be to have your home and your legacy stripped and handed away to a virtual stranger? wonder what that's like. Within the context of the thriving British Empire at this point in history, it, it smacks of irony just a little bit. It does. It does indeed. I think I wrote down, Mrs. Bennet is viewing Charlotte as though she's Fanny from Sense and Sensibility, that as soon as Mr. <laughs> Bennet dies, Charlotte's going to pack her bags like, it is I. <laughs> <laughs> I have come to claim <laughs> my rightful home. Mm-hmm. Everybody get out. That doesn't seem to be Charlotte's character, but Mrs. Bennet is convinced Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, in the light of the fact that within three days of Lizzie's rejection, Charlotte got Mr. Collins to propose, Mm -hmm. I also can't really blame Mrs. Bennett for having that perspective on it. Like, obviously, she's being a little hysterical about it, but if when the time came and Mr. Bennett died, that were in the best interests of Charlotte and her family, she may very well kick Mrs. Bennett out. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we would like to think that, no, she has enough care for other people. And certainly she hasn't done anything to suggest that she would be cruel. I feel like she's shrewd, but she's not cruel. That's exactly it. Like, I'm going to do what's best for me, and you might not like it, but... It's just pragmatic. No one else is going to look out for me. I have to. Mm-hmm. Which also is a colonialist idea, because it's a very individualistic culture. And other cultures are not necessarily built that way. They're built around collectivism and people taking care of one another. And that is not what we see (laughs) in British society. I got mine. Sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my fault your daughter rejected him. It's not my fault you're poor. (laughs) Stop being poor. (laughs) So Charlotte's engagement to Mr. Collins is one of what I think are the two main events in this section. The yeah. other being the Netherfield gang absconding to London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have upped and left and only send word to Jane about it once they've already left the building and are en route to London. And the whole letter from uh, Caroline Bingley to Jane is basically just extolling the virtues of Georgiana Darcy and saying, she's so wonderful and she's so sweet. And I hope I get to write to you with good news about Georgiana, my brother, soon hint hint wink wink and otherwise you know there's plenty of women in london for him to fall in love with just being so rude about Mm it and poor jane is really in contrast to charlotte so hopelessly naive and can only think the best of caroline and of bingley Mm -hmm. and just refuses to believe that any of them could have ill intentions right which i'm sure mr bingley doesn't have 
ill intentions. I'm fully convinced that, yeah, he just had to go to London on some kind of business. And Caroline saw the opportunity and seized it and decided to move everybody back to London to keep him there and away from Jane. And Elizabeth is the one who, after Jane has read this letter to her, is the one who says, you know... I am not inclined to think poorly of Mr. Bingley. However, I would maybe question Caroline's motives for moving them in the first place and also for telling you all of these things. And Jane, again, refuses to think ill of Caroline in any way. And you can see the difference in the way the two sisters think of other people and also kind of both of their fatal flaws coming into play because Jane thinks well of people to a fault, even when she should be less naive about how they're presenting and what they're saying to her, whereas Elizabeth is predisposed to just think ill of everyone. (laughs) And that doesn't help her much either, because then she doesn't give anybody room to change or to change her opinions of them. Like when she's decided that you suck, you suck forever. And that's not going to help her either. So it's interesting. Good opinion, once lost. Is lost forever. I mean, she was trying to fuck with Darcy But she really is correct that they have a lot in common in terms of pride. Yeah, and in chapter 24 or volume 2, chapter 1, depending on how your chapters are ordered, when Miss Bingley's second letter comes, Elizabeth actually finds herself accidentally agreeing with Darcy, though she doesn't realize it, because she is talking about how she doesn't care about Caroline talking at Miss Darcy again. She ignores that completely. And then when speaking of Bingley, Elizabeth is saying to herself, you know, that he was really fond of Jane. She doubted no more than she had ever done. And as much as she had always been disposed to like him, she could not think without anger, hardly without contempt, on that easiness of temper, that want of proper resolution, which now made him the slave of his designing friends and led him to sacrifice his own happiness to the caprice of their inclinations. So this is closer to appreciating the opinion of Darcy back when they were in the drawing room when Jane was sick about not... (laughs) listening to other people's opinions and instead forming your own and staying resolved within them but she doesn't realize that she's agreeing with Darcy and is actually contradicting the opinion that she herself gave all those months ago (laughs) I also love that we get more of like the sister relationship between Elizabeth and Jane in these chapters too so we have plot happening but we also get to see how they interact with one another and how much they care for one another and especially how much Elizabeth loves Jane and even says I think at one point I don't like many people but I adore you yeah it's something like I love very few people Mm -hmm. and I like even fewer Mm -hmm. she's very much like her father (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and a lot like Darcy yep but poor Jane is just trying to convince herself that no one is to blame that no one has done any wrong and that there was just a simple misunderstanding about the nature of the affection between her and Bingley Mm -hmm. and is trying to convince both Elizabeth and it seems herself that everything can go back to the way it was before she'll forget Mr. Bingley except maybe as a very pleasant man she knew once and she even says in that when she's trying to say that she'll forget him she's like well i'll only remember him as the most amiable man of my acquaintance Mm -hmm. like jane bless her heart that's still a preference yeah that was another thing thematically that struck me as having parallels with colonialism the idea that once a certain presence or a certain structure is gone that its influence will also disappear Mm. but if there's been any sort of impact 
it it can't just be erased. You know, consequences yeah. have a way of lingering, whether or not in the moment you think they'll have that kind of impact. No, I really love that analogy. Like, I feel like that's easier for people to understand. If you were really in love with someone for a long time, let's say you had a partner who you were with for like five years and the two of you split up suddenly, you don't stop loving them on the dot. That's not how that works. And similarly, just because an occupying presence has left the country, that doesn't mean that the effects of that occupation aren't going to be felt for a very long time. Especially when said country continues to plunder resources despite leaving. (laughs) France, Haiti, hello. Yeah, that may actually be a decent transition into the history. Please. Because one of the things that I made notes about is differentiating between various types of colonialism, which uh, pretty much all of them are things that... (laughs) Britain was engaging in, especially around this time. Calling me shocked. I know, right? As we talked about in the last episode with war, um, Britain was entering sort of a new phase of its imperial state. I saw in some references it called uh, the Second British Empire, whereas the first had sort of not collapsed, but its influence had shifted with the loss of the American colonies and the American Revolution. By this point, um, when Pride and Prejudice was being published in 1813, Britain's really ramping up into what was called afterwards the imperial century because they just expanded so hugely. But going back to these types of colonialism, there are certain things that we tend to think of when we hear that term. Possibly the two most prevalent would be settler colonialism and exploitation colonialism. So settler colonialism is when, you know, you have colonists from the colonial power who are moving to whatever place is being colonized, setting up their own systems, things like that, which often feeds into exploitation colonialism where they're explicitly trying to extract resources from this new place to serve their own interests. But in addition to that, there are other sort of flavors, I guess, (laughs) for lack of a better word popping into my head right now. Would you like cherry flavored colonialism? (laughs) Would you like vanilla? (laughs) Um, Actually, very apropos, one of them is trade colonialism, which is a realm that Britain really hit hard with the East India Company. Mm. So in addition to trade colonialism, there's surrogate colonialism, national colonialism, and then finally we have internal colonialism. Yeah, it's all very complex ideas. As with most things, this could be an entire podcast on its own. We have a habit for doing that. Yeah, so when it comes to colonialism, what we tend to think of, especially in the context of the British Empire, Mm -hmm. is settling by colonial power and exploitation of native resources, Mm -hmm. whether that be natural resources or using the labor of the indigenous populations, which is also quite popular. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As I mentioned, this sort of new wave of colonialism by England 
resulted in a huge expansion of their land. This is the period when the sun never sets on the British Empire. Mm -hmm. They're pushing into Southeast Asia, into Australia, um, trying to maintain their influence in the Americas. Um, They're expanding through the Pacific, all kinds of things even as they're trying to sort of rehabilitate their image back in Europe by doing things like prohibiting the slave trade. So enslaved people can't be transported on British ships, things like that. Of course, they're still making full use of that exploitation colonialism to get their labor for free anyway. It's estimated that about 10 million square miles of land and 400 million people were co-opted into the British Empire um, during that 19th century. After the Napoleonic Wars, Britain is sort of the uncontested ruler of the seas. You know, Britannia rules the waves. And they really took advantage of that. Yeah. Can we have Bill Wirtz do like a history of Britain instead of just history of the entire world? I just want to hear Bill Wirtz's take on Britain expanding to colonize the entire globe. Yep. They rolled up everywhere and said, open the country. Stop (laughs) having it be closed. (laughs) It's probably been two years at least since I've seen history of Japan, but it's it's a cultural touchstone. It is. Why is that so funny? Open the country, stop having it be closed. <laughs> will always make me laugh. Like, we know it's not funny. We know it's colonialism, but just the line. It's, it's quirky it's colonialism. colonialism. It's quirky colonialism. It is. <laughs> to bring it back to the book itself, the one time we have, like, an officer, quote unquote, in the text is when they're having a family dinner and Mrs. Bennett has invited other people over because, you know, her brother and her sister-in-law are in town and you have to, you know, it's she an occasion. Entertain. She must entertain. And Wickham is one of the people who's been invited and Mrs. Gardner is kind of looking at him and looking at Lizzie and looking at how he chooses to sit next to her and going, interesting. Yeah, that's the only time where we actually have like a military presence because we're so concerned with Charlotte and Mr. Collins and then the Netherfield gang up in Leaving Town that we really don't see much of the the militia who is still in town mm-hmm. <laughs> until the very last chapter of the section. They're just always there in the background. Lurking. Mm-hmm. Waiting to do a colonialism. They wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I feel like we can easily create ways to kind of read the theme into the text, but this one was a little bit more difficult to do just because mm-hmm. of the, the topic. Yeah, I mean, it's... We know it's there, but it's it's just so backgrounded that it doesn't really come in in any explicit ways. Which so, is also a function of colonialism, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we can assume, you know, their Christmas dinner that they're laying out, that absolutely would have products of British imperialism on the table. But, you know, we don't see things like that on the page. Mm-hmm. That's by design. You don't want to see the horrors that brought the things that you enjoy to your front door, nor do you want to think that you participate in that type of thing, because Mm -hmm. we all view ourselves as good and moral people, and realizing that we might be engaging in something that goes against our morals is really uncomfortable. So colonialism and things of that nature tend to stay in the background of polite society, because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to look right at it. Yeah, and once that habit is so ingrained, it comes to a point where Often, we don't even realize that the life we live is made possible by colonialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, we sitting here are very aware of it because we're sitting in the United States, which is, you know, 
colonialism all the way down. I'm sitting as a black person in the United States. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I, in the Regency, it probably would have been approached and understood differently because certain things would still be, you know, novelties. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still very aware of certain spices, you know, coming from India or whatever, and things being expensive because they are the products of, you know, some place on the other side of the world. And that's definitely changed with the way that industrialism has affected the world. You just go to the supermarket. You don't think about all of the steps that your chocolate bar had to go through in order for it to end up at the checkout line. Yeah, it's just vanilla a and cinnamon aren't being hawked as, you know, exotic goods. They're just things that you have in your kitchen cabinets. Mm-hmm. They've been made mundane. All our lives are infused with the effects of colonialism. And then, as now, there would be things that you just don't think about. It's just unconscious. Yeah, and we say that as a statement of fact, not as like a, a moral censure of yeah, anyone. It's, it's just not how judgment. it goes. Yeah, not judgment, just description. Similarly, I think my my pop culture connection was like a little bit tenuous, I suppose. It makes sense. I just don't know that it has a direct analogy. We'll see how well it connects. Yeah, tell me about it. I was thinking about, related to our previous conversation, about how Charlotte is teetering on the edge of being undesirable and no longer being eligible for marriage and connecting that to the politics of desirability and how we see that today so more of like a present culture rather than pop culture but there is a later pop culture connection and there's a really good quote on the politics of desirability from Audre Lorde Um, I mean anything Audre Lorde said was fantastic to begin with but this was particularly relevant that says those of us who stand outside the circle of the society's definition of acceptable women Those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular, and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. The crux of the politics of desirability is that narratives about beauty, intelligence, and kindness are mostly centralized on white people in Western society, which is a direct result of colonialism. Absolutely. And I was thinking about how that runs people who are black or older or darker skinned or what have you, if they don't conform to specific white ideals of beauty, that you're then undesirable, similar to how Charlotte's age and lack of fortune makes her undesirable in Regency society, neither of which she can control, but to a lesser extent than, you know, being born of a different race that's considered less desirable. And it's been in the back of my mind because I've been watching Love Island UK. There's a point to this, I promise. I believe you. <laughs> and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the brand of trash television that I love to hate, not even hate, I just enjoy it. I won't even pretend at this point. It's a reality television show that's been parodied by SNL and now has a United States equivalent over here that basically puts like 10 hot straight single people in a villa for like eight weeks during the summertime and the end goal is for them to remain in a couple for the entire eight weeks you don't have to stay with the same person but you have to be coupled up in order to stay in the villa past a recoupling and the end prize is like fifty thousand pounds or something like that so because you have to be in a couple in order to remain in the villa 
there's lots of politics of desirability that are happening because when you are initially coupled up, it's based off of looks alone. So there'll be five women who are already in the villa and then they can choose to step forward for each man who enters the villa for if they'd like to be coupled up with him, but it's the men who choose. So they can choose somebody who steps forward and indicates their interest, or they can choose a person who has not stepped forward at all because they don't think that they would be interested in him, but it doesn't matter. He can look at you and say like, oh, I think you're really hot and I'm going to choose you. And you know, the power balances will switch throughout the season. Sometimes women choose, sometimes men choose, but that initial coupling is always the men choosing when they enter the villa. And every time, without fail, if there is a darker skinned black woman who's standing there, she's always picked last because nine times out of 10, they will go for, you know, the blonde and fair skinned white woman before they choose a black woman who's equally stunning, if not more so, but you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Everybody has different things, but that's the point is that they'll get away with saying, oh, it's just a preference he just prefers blondes he just prefers whatever ignoring that there's a systemic reason that season after season regardless of whether it's love island australia or uk or whatever people who look a certain way are often picked last or you understand that they're in more innate danger of being single because they might be in a couple at one point so maybe they've coupled up with someone who perhaps is just playing a game to stay in the villa and will feign interest in them and then as soon as somebody who's more stereotypically desirable walks in that person is now at risk because they're not seen as actual valid competition they're a placeholder and that's been playing out specifically in this latest season of love island uk because they keep bringing in almost exclusively blonde white women not even brunettes gingers any other kind of hair type representation nothing blondes (laughs) that's it and One of the other islanders in the villa is this naturally beautiful person. And all of the islanders keep commenting on like, oh, Cass has so much energy. She has such a great personality. We're all friends with her in the villa. And yet somehow she's never actually seen as an object of desire, which doesn't make any sense to me. But this is still a colonial beauty standard that persists to this day. This is what British or Western society has said is beautiful based on what ethnically European people look like to the detriment of anyone who doesn't fit that. Mm -hmm. And your desirability is, it takes a hit from that. Your marriageability changes, like more black women remain unmarried compared to women of other ethnicities and demographics. It changes everything. Yeah, I mean, that definitely ties into colonialism and especially, I think, the idea of commodification, Mm -hmm. of seeing certain traits as not necessarily desirable but as a a thing to have to Mm -hmm. collect so the whole concept of goods or of people being seen as exotic and because they don't resemble anything that's available in whatever the colonial society is you know if we're talking regency england it's a lot of pale white people Mm -hmm. And so anyone with a darker skin tone than, you know, skim milk is automatically (laughs) exotic and perhaps not desirable in the sense that you're talking about Mm -hmm. as uh, wanting to be coupled with them romantically. But they're a novelty. And so their value then becomes that of a novelty, something that you can go and gawk at, you know, like sideshows at a circus, rather than being valued for the fact that they're human beings and deserve the same respect that everyone does, regardless of 
what they look like, where they're from, their level of education or intelligence, um, what resources they may have access to. We all should be afforded the same basic level of, of respect, regardless of any of that. But because under colonial systems, certain people and certain traits are associated with being commodities of a certain place, Mm -hmm. they become just another thing to trade in. Yeah. And I feel like you see that today too, with Mm -hmm. people fetishizing certain races, especially where it's like, I'm curious and I'm sexually attracted to you, but I will never see you as like a legitimate life partner. Mm -hmm. There's still that exoticization and fetishization that happens with anyone who's not white. Right. Yeah, we have been socialized to associate certain features with certain groups. So, for example, the fetishization of Asian women, Mm -hmm. especially Chinese, Japanese, Korean women, who, regardless of what their actual individual personality is, are seen as a whole by certain kinds of people as being quiet, as being Mm -hmm. submissive, as being docile, and they're desired for those assumed traits rather than, you know, just (laughs) being actual human beings who are worthy of the same love and respect and not based on arbitrary traits that have been pasted onto the whole group. Yeah, but it strikes me every time I watch that show. And or uh, it strikes me every time I watch this season of Love Island to the point where I just stopped and I've started watching Love Island US instead. And I'll just catch up on the recaps of what's happening with Love Island UK because it's just so blatant to the point where my least favorite person this season keeps telling this stunning girl who he's coupled up with who he does not deserve. (laughs) She is too good for him. And he keeps saying, if another blonde girl comes in, then I'll get to know her. You know, like if another leggy blonde comes in, like, do you care about personality at all when it comes to compatibility? Anyway, Charlotte Lucas feeling and being undesirable just reminded me of all of those politics playing out in almost real time on Love Island UK. Do you have anything else colonialism related that you wanted to chat about for this episode? It makes mean, it sound very mundane. There are there are <laughs> many things that I could say about colonialism, but you know, I think that'll do it for a single episode of a podcast that has many other themes. Just maybe. Yeah. All right. Shall we do final takeaways? Yes. And it's me up first. I think my final takeaway centers around Charlotte's decision to marry Mr. Collins and the way Elizabeth reacted. It's a very pragmatic decision, but Lizzie can't see that. Despite how close she is to Charlotte and how much she presumably knows about Charlotte's situation, I think my final takeaway is that no matter what our personal relationship with a person is, we can't always understand in intimate detail why they may have made a decision, whether we agree with it or not. I don't know if that's even a halfway decent takeaway, but... <laughs> There's no, like, ratings of takeaways. You get, yeah, that's you get true. from it what you get from it, and I think that's perfectly valid. A reminder not to judge is always timely, I think. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of my takeaways uh, just roll right back around to stop judging people. <laughs> Leave Brittany alone. <laughs> So do you have a more coherent final takeaway than me? We should be kind to people who make decisions based on the options society has given to them.
because they're doing the best with what they can and it might not be the decision that we would have made or from the outside it might look as though they are settling or accepting less or making a poor choice but sometimes if they feel like what they can do is work with what they have that's a decision that we have to respect I think that ties in really well with the theme of colonialism too and and the effects that that can have on as you say the options available to us Mm -hmm. because of society somehow we got a coherent thought out somehow hallelujah (laughs) thank you for joining us in this episode of reclaiming jane next time we'll look at chapters 26 through 30 of pride and prejudice through the lens of family To read a full transcript of this episode, check out our website, reclaimingjanepod.com, where you can also find show notes, our full back catalog, and links to social media. If you'd like to support us and gain access to exclusive content, you can join our Patreon at Reclaiming Jane Pod. Reclaiming Jane is produced and co-hosted by Lauren Weathers and Emily Davis-Hale. Our music is by Latasha Bundy, and our show art is by Emily Davis-Hale. We will see you next time. There's like three couples that I know of who are still together. I think so. But I've only watched like two and a half seasons of this show. So I'm not an expert in Love Island. I'm sure the subreddit would be able to tell you many more people who have survived and whatever. But um, Oh, yeah. They kill them all at the end of the show. <laughs> I realized when I said survives, it sounded a lot more dramatic than it actually needs to be. If you're not coupled by the end of the season... Yeah, when they say you've been dumped from the villa, what they really mean is that they're going to toss you out the side of a cliff. (laughs) You're not getting an you're not getting a first class flight back to England. You're just going to be dumped off the side of the cliff. (laughs) You can swim home. I hope you've been training in the Infinity Edge pool that they can't be in because I can't take off their microphones, and so they just stick their feet in all the time.